Hey friends, welcome to God on Tap. As always, I'm Naka Spalding, and we are going to do the first half of chapter two today. So today's God on Tap is chapter two, verses three through 11. First John chapter two, verses three through 11. So let's jump right in. This is the word of the Lord. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. And whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him. There is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eye. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I Man, I love John so much. So he, you know, you can already see like this contrast between light, dark, hate, love. And if you, so if, let me paint a picture for where he's at in the trajectory of the whole of scripture. So if you think about the Old Testament, there's some debate as to whether or not there's 600, essentially there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament, okay? And there's some debate as to that exact number, but we're going to go with 613 because I'm convinced of it. 613 commandments. That's a lot of commandments. It's not that many, right? If you're talking about a God who, you know, is like, hey, you want to know what it's like to please me? Here's 613 commandments. You could reasonably learn most of them. Some of them are uh, very similar to others, right? Then Jesus comes along. Um, well, really, the prophets come along and they're like, listen, you've heard all these laws from the Torah. You've heard them all. And Micah's like, hey, guys, this is what it means to please God, to seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, seek the welfare of those around you. Don't be haughty. And, and love your God. Walk with your God. Like, Micah's already understanding what many scholars and prophets and others already, like we're going to, we, you see this, you see that all of the law is going to be condensed down so much so that when you ask Jesus, hey, what's the law? He's like, love the Lord and love your neighbor. Like you can condense 613 laws down into this. Love God, love people. And that same idea is picked up in the writings of the New Testament as well. You see this in Paul. You see that essentially for Paul, there are times where he even excludes loving God as because it is assumed, like it's assumed that you're going to love God. And so if you love God, then that means like you can't say, oh, I love God, but I don't love people. That, that's just crazy because part of loving God is he's going to tell you love people. So if you love God, you will love people. And so Paul even assumes that. And so John is writing in the same trajectory as so many that have come before him. You can see how this passage that I just read to you, if we really wanted to break it down, it would be love God as evidenced by your obedience and then love people as evidenced by those who say they love God cannot walk in the darkness and and only hatred lives in the darkness. So love is in the light and I want to be in the light as you are in the light. Yeah. So 
That's what we see here. And so this is what uh, I think is happening is we moved from very negative examples of false teaching in that unit in the, or in the passage from yesterday. Do this, you a liar. Do this, you a liar. And we have a little bit of the you are a liar again today. Um, thank you to Nixon for that phrase. You are a liar. Uh, but now we're transitioning into... Mm, more of positive examples, okay? So yesterday was don't say that you do this and then don't do this. Instead, we are moving from the negative to the positive. And really, we're going to get, in chapter two, we get basically three litmus tests. And y'all know what I mean by litmus tests. Y'all remember in high school, you take the little red strip and you stick it in the liquid. If it turns blue, that's base. It turns red, that's acid. Y'all know what I'm talking about? So the litmus test for people who would say, hey, I belong to God. I follow God. I believe in Jesus Christ as the risen Lord and Savior. You can see that John is setting up three different tests. And so the way that I would uh, classify them, and I, I stole this from John Stott. It's a really helpful way of looking at it, is there's sort of the moral test. So morally, if you say you love God, there's a moral litmus test, which says, are you walking in the light? Are you being obedient? There's a social litmus test, which says, are you loving your neighbor? Are you loving your brother? And then tomorrow we'll get into the second half of chapter two, where there's this doctrinal litmus test of, do you believe that Jesus is in fact the Messiah? And so there's this idea of like, there's this moral component to our faith. There's this social component to our faith. And there's a doctrinal component to our faith. And I think John is highlighting that for people who are saying, we're not sure, we're, we're struggling to believe that we are saved. He's going, okay, I've got some litmus tests. You can take these little strips of paper, bloop, 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 in the liquid, pull them out, and then they're going to tell you. Now, hear me, friends. Um, th- th- this is why I like the, the metaphor of the litmus test. The crazy thing about litmus tests is that there's any base. I'm talking any base. It's going to turn your strip blue. If there's any acid, like any acid, it's going to turn your litmus strip red. Why do I say that? You you might find yourself reading these passages, the moral and the social today, and going, I, I though I strive for that, can right now think of 10 examples where I did not do that well. Especially some of y'all are listening to this on your commute, so you might have just flipped someone off, right? So you're like, oh gosh. Do I love my neighbor? Does that in- exclude flipping someone the bird on 635 in bumper-to-bumper traffic? So hear me. This is why I like the metaphor of the litmus test. Um, it doesn't have to be the most basic solution in the world. It's just got to have a little bit of OH negative ions in there in order for the litmus test to work. And so this is not, the, again, this is meant to encourage you that if you are found in Christ, this is what it looks like. It's to root out those who would be false teachers who would say, it doesn't matter if you love your neighbor. It doesn't matter if you uh, walk in the light. It doesn't matter if you believe, like some parts of the faith are fine, but you don't have to believe all of it. Like that's crazy. And so this isn't meant to be an encouragement and a, a full explanation of the moral, social, and doctrinal dimensions of our faith. Because it it's essentially answering the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? And and I think we need to wrestle with this. And so what does it mean? Well, it and also it pushes back against people who would say Christianity is only doctrinal. It's only about an, a, a set of beliefs that you can tick off and say, I believe those, without caring for their neighbor. And then we'd go, no, no, that's crazy. John wouldn't say that. Jesus wouldn't say that. Paul wouldn't say that. So why would we say that? And it's also likewise crazy to say, oh, it's all about loving your neighbor to the exclusion of a doctrinal principle. 
or to a moral principle. And we would say, no, 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 no. What it means to be found in God is these, it's a fully holistic life submission that's of course going to affect the moral, social, and doctrinal aspects of your life. And so, yeah, so let's jump right in. So let's look at this first one, this moral one. So he's saying, look, if you say that you are in Christ, then you are going to keep his commands. The love of God is perfected. We know that we are in him because you abide in him and you walk in the same way in which he walked. So what does this mean? One, I hope if you have read through the Gospel of John that you caught some murmurings of the upper room discourse because that's very similar way of saying here, if you love me, you will abide in me. You you know, the vine and the branches type abiding language. So why why is it that part of our moral fabric is to say that if we're Christians, we would walk in that way? Well, uh, I may th- I think that what we sometimes fail to understand is when we don't walk in in the way that Jesus would walk. We sometimes think that there's these things called victimless sins. And and what I mean by that is sometimes we think like, what does God care if I look at pornography? Like, what, what does God care? Or what does God care if I have premarital sex? Or if I get super drunk all the time? And the reality is, is one, there's there's no such thing as a victimless sin because one, Jesus Christ went to the cross for those things. But why why are those sins in the first place? Like, why are they a violation of God's moral ethic for us? And I think what we sometimes fail to understand is that oftentimes when we're not walking in the light, it, it causes us to harm other people, right? So there's an entire industry built around pornography that if you don't, it's asking you to suspend reality and think that that's an actual sexual encounter you're having. But in your suspended reality, you fail to realize that there is somebody being harmed on the other side of that screen. First of all, you're being harmed. Like all the data out there in the world says that pornography is incredibly harmful to the users. It Just period. So if you don't think that it's causing you harm, you're crazy. And women, I'm looking at you at the same rate I'm looking at men. So don't think that I'm talking to the fellows right now. I'm talking to humans right now. But not only that, across that screen are people being exploited in the sex industry. We know now that oftentimes people in those videos, they're not free. No, nobody wakes up and says, I want to work in the porn industry. And if they're saying that, they're lying, okay? They are harmed by this industry disproportionately so the women are. And we know that the porn industry has no problem exploiting young children. So why does God care about what it is that we view for our sexual pleasure? Because when we don't walk in the light, people are harmed. It's the same reason why sex outside of marriage is so harmful. It's not just because God's like, listen, I'm a prude and y'all need to keep it in marriage and yada, yada. No, it's because most of the time when we're having sex outside of marriage, and I would argue all the time, but go with me here. Most of the time it leaves somebody, if not both parties harmed, right? I mean, we know what affairs do to a marriage and to a family, we know what a power differential struggle happens in the workplace. We how many do we need to? We don't need another Me Too movement and another Church Too movement to understand the destructiveness of sexual desires being left unchecked. We we know. I listen. I'm a pastor. I know the destruction of those who would say it was a consensual relationship, and yet they still carry around. And I'm not just saying because purity cultures harm people. Listen, purity cultures harmed a ton of people. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not a prude here being like, ah, wear your ring and don't have sex before marriage. What I'm saying is, is the reason why marriage is protected in the context of a covenant agreement is because almost all the time that you see sex happening outside of that, it brings about harm and destruction. 
Take drunkenness, for your example. You think you're not harming people. How many of y'all have said or done something or been in harm's way because of your inability to control your substance? Right? I mean, this is why when God says, you are to walk as I walk, it's because the false teachers in Ephesus had no problem taking advantage of people. The moral code they didn't walk in and they didn't think it applied to them. And yet they left in the way, in their wake, destruction and brokenness. The people are harmed. It's why there's a moral code to how we live. It's why God says you are to walk as Jesus walked. Because Jesus didn't harm people. And so I think sometimes we think that morality or maybe these Christian ethics are old and outdated. And look, some of them are dumb. Like some of them aren't from the Bible. So we should question some of them, right? I don't, I think it's ridiculous that you can't dance in some context or it's ridiculous people say any sip of alcohol is sinful. Like there are plenty of Christian traditions, including that, that comes from purity culture. Like holding hands leads to sex. No, it doesn't. No, it That's stupid. But there are plenty of things that the world would say that's antiquated and outdated that God would say no to engage in this behavior will lead to harm and destruction for you and for others. It's why there's a moral code to the way that we live because God is about the flourishing of all human life. And so in order for all of human life to be flourishing, there has to be boundaries because your flourishing will infringe upon others and harm them. That's why it's not truly flourishing. Boundaries given by God that we choose to walk in because Jesus Christ is the example to us brings about flourishing for every person made in the image of God. That's why there's a moral code to what we do. The second one, the social code. So, okay, so first litmus test, do you love me? If you love me, you will obey me. When you obey me, it brings about the flourishing in the land. I'm not a buzzkill. I love you all. The second one is if you love me, then you will love each other. And this one, gosh, y'all, I think people are like, well, yeah, duh. I mean, love God, love people, right? But here's the thing. Throughout Jesus' ministry, what he is constantly trying to shake up is this idea of we tend to love those that are like us and easy to love. So what I mean by that is he's like, you should be hospitable. And people are like, I open up my house all the time to rich people who can give me a kickback. Right? He, He And then he comes along. He's like, no, 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 eat with those who can't help you. Or he comes along, he says, Let me, he gives, you know, the young rich man, he's like, hey, um, what is, what is the grace command? He's like, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy's like, oh, okay, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor, Jesus? And Jesus is like, oh, I'm so glad you asked. Anyone you can help. And he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And he uses a Samaritan, someone who ethnically, the people listening to his story would not have felt deserves to be the hero of any story. And he says, listen. The point of this story is when I talk about loving others, I don't mean love them as you would love them or as the world would love them. I mean love them as I would love them, which is without consideration for distinction of class, gender, socioeconomic status, ability, profession, what they can do for me. Jesus doesn't have a category for his love for us where he's like, yeah, you know, I tend to love um, lawyers and upper middle class and Sooner fans more. That's crazy. That's ridiculous. Right. And so when he's saying, hey, what is the social test here? It's not, hey, do you love those that look like you, act like you and talk like you? He's saying, no, 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 no. Your brothers in this kingdom include a multi-ethnic global expansion of the gospel that means you might have to love people 
that don't look and sound and talk and eat and party and sing like you do? And will you love them how I love them? And what's more than that, will you also love the ones that are really difficult to love? Because frankly, it feels like they're just buttheads. That's the social ethic here. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because darkness has blinded his eye. Darkness and hate hold hands. Light and love hold hands. That's what he's saying here in this social ethic. Hey, God is light. Boom. Huge statement at the beginning of chapter one. Boom. God is light. In light of that, anyone who says that they don't need to walk in the light or blah, 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 they're liars. And you're like, okay, wow. Okay. And he's like, so by the way, this is how we live out the realized truth that God is light and those that belong to him walk light. Morally, we will follow as Jesus taught us. Because that brings about flourishing and that brings about light in an otherwise dark world. And then socially, we will love those even, even, even if they're not like us. Because only people who walk in the darkness can tolerate that kind of hate. Light and love hold hands. You cannot separate them. You cannot say, I love God, but I hate my neighbor. You cannot say, I love God, but I tolerate racism. You cannot. You cannot say, I love God, but I think those people are gross and I will not have them at my table. You cannot. That is not how it works. Not in the kingdom of God. And so what's our what's our big so what for us here? Um, I believe that in these letters in the New Testament, sometimes it's easy to look at the behavior that's being asked of you. And that becomes where we spend our time in the word is analyzing behavior, thinking that we can behavior our way into doing, fulfilling these litmus tests, so to speak. You're like, okay, I'm going to love my neighbor. I'll invite so-and-so over because I can't really stand them. So I'll have dinner with them. That'll be great. And I'll obey God's commands and check, 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 check. And what I want to do is I want to push through that. As we read First John, what I want to push through is the call to obedience, which is super important and we should do it. And push all the way to the God that is light. That the reason why we're doing any of this is because we're in relationship with the God who is light. And so that's instructive to us. And so here's why I'd say, if, if you are struggling to walk and you feel like you're walking in darkness, run to the one who is light. And if you have friends who are walking in darkness... Encourage them to run to the one who is light. And if you're having a hard time loving other people, then remember it is only by his light that you are made right. I'm not intending to be a poet here. I'm sorry, I'm Dr. Seussing this, but they just happen to rhyme. And if you you are communicating with folks who have a hard time loving people who aren't like them, you need to remind them that they are on borrowed righteousness. And that light and love hold hands. It's a brilliant book that we're studying. And I hope that as you work through it, you will not feel as if you are failing God so much as you will see how much God really loves us. And because of that, he calls us into a life of great love and light and the adventure of being neighbors and obedient children. It's quite an honor to participate in that. If nobody's told you today that they love you, I do but way more importantly, God does.